12.30. Let us get started, everyone. Uh, welcome. Glad you're here. As always, this was so good today. This is really good pasta. I don't know what kind it is. Yeah, I'm definitely going to take home a little container. Um, you, oh, you slaved all night, didn't you? I could tell. I could taste the love in it. Um, what's that? I, am, I have zero Italian in me, as my skin tone probably illustrates. I'm at home on an Irish peat bog eating boiled potatoes. Um, <clears throat> but good to have everybody here. Uh, just a quick reminder, if you like this ministry and you want it to keep going, one way that you can do is by supporting us at a monthly level. Um, we have, I have the website here on the iPad. If you're interested in doing that and you don't carry cash, then feel free to come up, take a look, and see if you'd like to become a monthly supporter of this ministry, Disciple Dojo. Um, <clears throat> but tip them first. Make sure you tip the kitchen staff first because they do a great job every week and they serve us, so we want to serve them and bless them. Uh, last week, we looked at the first part of Numbers chapter 20. I forgot to hit record on the video. <laughs> So I had to go home and record it at my kitchen table. <clears throat> so if you do catch the video from last week, it was good too. I was so bummed. Um, I hate talking to just a camera. I have to do it in front of people. I don't know why. Some people are just the opposite. They get nervous in front of people. I get nervous if it's just me talking to a camera in an empty room with a dog at my feet, which is what it was. Uh, he makes a cameo. So anyway, you can catch up on Numbers chapter 20, but we looked at... Here's what's been going on in Numbers in this section. There's been, you know how the camp in the first 10 chapters of, well, in all of Leviticus, and in the first 10 chapters of Numbers, the camp was arranged in concentric circles of holiness. So there's like unclean, impure, regular world. Then there's a layer of the Israelites or a ring of the Israelites camped. Then there's the Levites camped in the middle. And then in the middle of that, there's the tabernacle. And then in the middle of that, there's the actual tent of meeting, and then in the middle of that is the Holy of Holies. So it's this concentric rings, like a bullseye, dartboard, or something that goes out, outward. Well, what's happened in this section of Numbers, since about chapter 14 or so, about 12, 14, somewhere in there, there have been these rebellions that have crept into those concentric rings. And last chapter, or last week, we looked at chapter 20, which is when the rebellion finally reaches the center. And even Moses and Aaron succumb to it, to the rebellion. And, and they actually rebel against what God had commanded Moses to do and received a stiff, what we would think of as an unfair penalty. But in the act of what they did, God gave them a specific command. And we saw last week how Moses, with a high hand, and that's a key that gets overlooked in this verse, it says, Moses lifted his hand, raised his hand. That's the terms that's used for high-handed sin in the Bible. So it's not like an accidental thing that Moses did. He, 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 God says it. You rebelled against me. God's the judge of all the earth. He knows the hearts and the minds of everybody. He knows Moses because Moses is his friend. And face-to-face, -face he talked with Moses. So if anyone can be determined to fairly judge the actions of Moses, it will be God. And so God's judgment on Moses seems severe. But at the same time, God's relationship with Moses was much deeper than it was with anybody else. And it's an axiom of, of leadership 
not just biblical leadership, but I think I would suggest leadership anywhere. The higher the degree of authority, the higher the degree of accountability should be there. So if someone has, whether it's anything, you know, this, this extends to all areas, but I mean, heck, Spider-Man said it, right? With great power comes great responsibility. That's, even the comic books get it. Um, when you are given a role of leadership and authority, it, if anything, your accountability and, your, and judgment, should you misuse that, should be greater, not less. That's why it's such a scandal when people in authority abuse their authority. And it's even more of a scandal when that abuse of authority is hushed up or is covered for. Or, and, and there's so many examples. I mean, you probably think of some depending on what you are, are reading or talking about or looking at these days, you know, whether it's scandals in the Catholic Church with the leadership they've had, scandals in TV evangelists and the ministries and the things that they've done, uh, even in local churches, scandals in government, misusing funds and everything, scandals in law enforcement. Uh, all of these areas of leadership, there's potential for abuse. And one thing that God rails against over and over and over, especially in the prophets, is the misuse of authority and the, the, the misuse of the power that he has entrusted, the power over his people that he has entrusted with his servants. And so it, it's a sobering thought. You know, it's, it's like we said last week, it was probably on James's mind when he wrote chapter 3, verse 1, not all of you should aspire to be teachers because those, those of us who teach will be held to a higher standard or judge with a stricter judgment. Um, it, so it's something that chapter 20, again, like we said last week, should cause some fear and trembling. That the rebellion that had, that had tainted Israel, that had crept, it's almost like sin is it's illustrating this contagion of sin. It's like a disease. Uh, and disease is one of the ways that sin's, sin is portrayed in Scripture. Sin is not just a simple, I did this and it was wrong. That's one aspect of sin, but only one. Sin is described multifaceted ways in Scripture. The first time it's ever described, ever, way back in Genesis, it's described as an animal crouching, pouncing, ready to, ready to pounce. It's a term that's used of lions or uh, animals that prey on other animals. They crouch and they wait to strike. It's, it's the first time it's ever described is as an entity that seeks to desire, to devour humanity. And the last time it's ever described is as an enemy that is put to death, that is literally thrown into the lake of fire when Jesus returns. So sin at the beginning and the end is personified in Scripture. It's not just wrong behavior. It's this animate force. It's a force at work in the world. And, and it, it has the ability to permeate and to infect. The whole openings of Genesis, chapters 1 through 11, showed that downward spiral of humanity because of sin, how sin snowballs and has the ability to corrupt everyone. And all throughout Scripture, Israel is going to battle this. Their calling is higher than the calling of any other nation. Now, they're the least of the nations in terms of numbers, in terms of prestige, in terms of geographical resources, uh, military might. They're the least of the nations. But their calling is going to literally be the highest calling of all the nations. And that calling will be to bring forth the Messiah and be the bridge by which God brings His people back, all the peoples of the earth back to Him. From the very beginning, their goal has been to be a kingdom of priests. That's what He said back in Exodus 19. What do priests do? They stand and intercede on behalf of those on the outside to those on the inside. Or in this case, on those on earth to the one in heaven. So that calling has a high responsibility. And the people who are judged more severely in the entire Bible, both Testaments, are always God's people. 
They're judged more severely because more has been given to them. More knowledge has been given to them. More relationship. More, more of God. And so they are held to a higher standard. And that's going to be true in Israel. So remember this as we move into what will happen later into Deuteronomy and Joshua and Judges with the idea of the conquest and these lands. And people say, oh, this is, you know, God favors Israel and it's uh, genocide and ethnic cleansing because Israel are the favored people and this and that. Always have to keep in mind the purpose of Torah is to, for Israel to be the bridge that draws the nations back to God. Remember, Israel is already a mixed ethnicity. This also goes unnoticed by a lot of people. My friend, you know, one of my colleagues, we were in seminary together in Boston, Dr. Esau McCulley, he's a New Testament professor now, Anglican, and he just wrote a blog post yesterday. I shared it. It's so good. He pointed out back in the end of Genesis when Joseph's, you know, you know there's no tribe of Joseph, right, in the Bible, that Joseph doesn't have a tribe. There's the half-tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh. Well, who are they? Well, they're Joseph's sons. Who's their mom? An Egyptian. So two of the tribes of Israel are half African. That gets glossed over a lot. But yeah, there's the two whole tribes. Um, and when Israel comes out of Egypt, out of the Exodus, there's a mixed multitude that comes with them. And of the people who left Egypt as an adult, who will enter into Canaan as an adult, there's only two. Joshua and Caleb. Joshua, Israelite. Caleb, a Kenizzite. Not an Israelite. So from the very beginning, the people of Israel have always been a multi-ethnic people. Global missions is nothing new. It's not God's plan B. The church didn't become suddenly you know, open to Gentiles at Pentecost. It's been that way all along. In fact, one of the things Jesus was so vehement in critiquing the people of his day about was their huddled nationalist mentality. We're going to guard ourselves, guard against impurity, keep out the Romans, keep out the Greeks, the barbarians, you know, all of these, keep them all out. We're not even going to eat with them. That's nowhere ever prohibited in Scripture, by the way. We're not even going to eat with them. And, and we're just going to guard our purity. That's what Jesus was so upset about in a number of his run-ins with the authorities. You know, we're getting into the New Testament, but when he cleansed the temple, when he turns the money changers table over, if you read it, it wasn't because they were cheating the people. There's no evidence that they were cheating the people. In fact, the law tells them, yeah, you should be able, people who travel from far away to come to the temple should be able to buy sacrifices at the temple because they can't carry or bring an animal that distance without it becoming blemished. So they can come and they can buy their animal at the temple. There was nothing wrong with that. If you look at what Jesus did do, it was where they were doing it. They had set up shop, not outside the temple, or outside the city or in an area where they had set it up in the court of the Gentiles. The one place in the temple where Gentiles were allowed to go. And that's where they set up shop. And that's what Jesus said. You've, this is supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. And you've turned it into a den of robbers. So there's this, I, I emphasize this because it's so important. Nationalism is, is, is a concept that will always plague humanity. It'll always plague humanity. The borders, you know, the boundaries, the, the, whether it's, you know, ethnic borders or boundaries, racial, whether it's national, you know, countries and states and cities, uh, whether it's the Mason-Dixon line, you know, that's, for some of us, that's like your nationality. Um, there's always, God's vision is always beyond that. It's always greater than that. From the very beginning, it's been to redeem for himself a people of every 
tribe, nation, ethnicity, and language. It's always been the goal. From Genesis to Revelation. And so Israel's part of that. So anyway, this, this whole section of numbers is Israel is endangering, by their rebellion against God, they're endangering the mission of God. They're endangering, by the way, and I just mentioned that there's a book called The Mission of God by Christopher Wright. Best book of biblical theology ever written in the English language. I cannot recommend it strongly enough if you have not read The Mission of God by Christopher Wright. It is phenomenal. And it goes through and lays out. That's what God's mission is. From the beginning, he's been a mission God. He's been wanting to reach the nations. Israel is going to be how they do it. So now, Israel in chapter 20, though, their leadership is rebelled. This is the final, this is the end of this generation. The last of this generation is dying off. Moses will be the final one who dies from the generation, but that won't happen until the end of Deuteronomy. So uh, Aaron, uh, Miriam has already died, and this chapter will end with the death of Aaron kind of serving as a bookend. But in the meantime, Israel now has, is, is about to encounter one of these nations. And it happens to be their cousins, the Edomites. So we read chapter 20, starting in verse 14. So where they are, they're at Kadesh. <clears throat> Moses sent messengers from Kadesh to the king of Edom. Edom is, so think of the Dead Sea, and the Gulf of Aqaba is down here, and that's where Saudi Arabia would be over here. Uh, Egypt would be, the Sinai would be over here. And Israel would be kind of in this area. And then there's the Dead Sea along its border. So the bottom of that is Edom. Okay? Above that would be Moab. And that's where Israel wants to get to Moab. And there's a highway that ran from all the way up in Damascus, Syria, all the way down to the Gulf called the King's Highway. And so they could travel very easily. It's a very, it was a well-traveled road. And it would be a straight shot up to the Jordan River, and then cross over into the Promised Land. I'm doing this backwards so you guys are looking. It's right. Uh, I'm doing it backwards for me. So they would be coming into the Promised Land from this way. So that's the goal. They just want to go right, up, right through Edom, right on the highway, not even going to uh, camp or anything. We just want to go through. So they sent messengers to the king of Edom saying, this is what your brother Israel says. Now, brother Israel, that used to be literally true. Esau and Israel were brothers, twin brothers. And they became the peoples of Israel and Edom. So it's very common in the Bible, as we've seen over and over and over, to refer to peoples by the name of a person. And so that's what's going on here. Your brother Israel says, You know about all our hardships that have come upon us. Our forefathers went down into Egypt, and we lived there many years. The Egyptians mistreated us and our fathers. When we cried out to the Lord, He heard our cry and sent an angel and brought us out of Egypt. Now, the angel could be the angel of the Lord, or it could be Moses, or probably both, because angel is just the word messenger. So whether that's talking about Moses, or whether it's talking about a supernatural, the angel that was the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire, either way it works, God sent deliverance, and he brought it, sent a messenger, and they brought them out. So this just summarized all of the half of the book of Genesis, the last half of Genesis, and all of Exodus was just summarized in that few verses. So he says, now, here we are at Kadesh, a town or a city, or a region, or an area, on the edge of your territory. Please let us pass through your country. We will not go through any field or vineyard or drink water from any well. We will travel along the king's highway and not turn to the right or to the left until we have passed through your territory. So that's the, hey, can we just, can we go through? That's all they want to do. But Edom answered, you may not pass through here. And if you try, we will march out and attack you with the sword. The Israelites replied, and so this would have been either through a messenger or as a group 
representatives, elders, would have approached. <clears throat> the Israelites replied, We'll go along the main road. If we or our livestock drink any of your water, we'll pay for it. We only want to pass through on foot, nothing else. And again they answered, You may not pass through. And then Edom came out against them with a large and powerful army. Literally in the Hebrew it says, with a, with a heavy people, or a glorious people. The word glory and heavy is the same word. Or a, 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 and that's a mighty force. And a strong hand is, is literally what the Hebrew says. And that term strong hand means a powerful force or, or might. So Edom comes out. Israel's on the border. Edom says, you can't pass through. Israel says, come on, come on, it's no big deal. We'll just go straight through, we'll be done. Edom comes out in force and says, you can't, you know, Gandalf, you shall not pass, right? But with a sword. Um, <clears throat> and so they deny Israel passage. Now we expect in the later narratives when people come out and oppose Israel, they're going to attack. They'll, have, they'll, they'll battle. But that's when they're entering into the land that God's given them. And that's when they're actually attacked by people. This was just Edom coming out and, and basically showing some force and saying, no, you can't come this way. So what's going on here? Well, this, there's some, I mean, the, in the mind of the author, at least of, of Numbers, this should bring to mind the last time we read about Jacob and Esau, Israel and Edom. Uh, it, it, they mended things. You know, they patched up their relationship, but there was always tension. And even the last time they met, uh, uh, Israel sent Jacob, he had just become Israel after the wrestling match with God, and he sent his wives and servants and children and family and everything, and, and, and the, the word was, uh, your brother Esau's coming and he's got a bunch of armed men with him. And there was this tense moment, and then there was reconciliation, and then Edom said, hey, come back to our land, and let's you know, celebrate your return. And Jacob said, okay, but you go ahead, and I'll catch up later. And then Jacob went elsewhere. So there was this unresolved tension between the two that probably not, would not have gone forgotten, especially given the fact that Edom lives where Edom is because Jacob got their birthright. They don't live in Canaan. They didn't live in the best of the land. They, they gave that up. Their ancestor Esau gave that up. And so they live down in Edom in, in not great territory. If you've ever been to the southern shore of the Dead Sea, it's not very uh, fertile. So... There's just this unresolved tension between these relatives, family squabble, cousins, so to speak. And sometimes those are the harshest and the longest standing feuds that you see. But in this case, uh, God doesn't say, okay, go attack them. Because they don't have that right. It's not like Israel has the right to do whatever they want. They, they, they have to exercise diplomacy at times, which they do here. And then sometimes they exercise military battles and strategy, which they will in the very next chapter. But there's this tension, and it's a nuancing of how Israel's relationship with their military might is that God is their army, God, God is their general, the head of their army, and God is the one who leads them into battle. So if God doesn't lead them into battle, they don't really have authorization to battle. And that's the sense you get as you read these accounts in this book and the next. And especially, you know, in Joshua, elsewhere, when it actually gets to the conquest. So, uh, the, verse 21, since Edom refused to let them go through their territory, Israel turned away from them. Now, later Edom will be rebuked by Amos, chapter 1, and he'll rebuke them for pursuing Israel with the sword. He may be talking about this passage or elsewhere because Edom would continue to be 
not an outright antagonist all the time, but they would continue to, to be a, 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 an outlying antagonist to Israel. And there would, there would be tension that would remain over the years between Edom and Israel. But what was Edom thinking at this point? Why? I mean, Israel just wants to pass through. Why not let them? Again, you have to remember, from the Edomites' perspective, this nation had just, previous generation, had come out of Egypt and had basically destroyed the chariot army of the strongest empire in the world. They were a dangerous people. They were a numerous people, whether it was 50,000 or 2 million, and we've already talked about that before at the beginning of this study. Uh, regardless, that's a lot of people coming through your territory with all their animals. So any vegetation, kiss that goodbye. Any water that you've got, gone. Right? This is the fear of the Edomites. Edom fears for their national security. And fear of your national security will lead you to do things that, in hindsight, aren't a great idea all the time. But it's a legitimate fear at the time. They're scared. This people, what are they going to do? They're going to use our resources. They're going to take our, our, our farmlands or our crops or our water or our jobs. They didn't think that. But you see how this manifests itself. There's the natural fear of the other people. And God's people in this, uh, in this account find themselves turned away because of the nationalist fears of the Edomites. Whether those fears were legitimate or not, in this case, Israel has to go all the way around Edom before they can get back on their journey. And so they do. But between them, there's one thing that's going to happen. Verse 22, the whole Israelite community set out from Kadesh and they came to Mount Hor. At Mount Hor, near the border of Edom, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Aaron will be gathered to his people. He will not enter the land I gave the Israelites because both of you rebelled against my command. There it is. That rebellion had all gotten all the way to the very top of Israel's leadership. Both of you rebelled against my command at the waters of Meribah. Get Aaron and his son Eliezer and take them up to Mount Hor. Remove Aaron's garments and put them on his son Eliezer. For Aaron will be gathered to his people. He will die there. Gathered to his people is how the death of the righteous in, in the Old Testament, the death of the, the God's people is described. When you died, whether, the, the belief at this point is that we don't know what's going to happen like in the far, far, far future. Like Abraham had a belief that God would somehow still keep his promise of giving him the land even though he would die. And he had a belief that even if God had him kill Isaac, uh, that Isaac would return because God can raise the dead. The author of Hebrews will tell us that. Uh, and so there's a hazy notion that death isn't the end, but there's also a realistic notion in the, in the Old Testament Hebrew mind that when you die, you go somewhere. You, your spirit leaves your body, and your body rots. And <clears throat> they didn't have it all worked out. So the concept was the grave. You die, you go to the grave. Sheol is the Hebrew word. And it's just where the spirits of the dead are. And they're just hanging out, sleeping, resting, uh, waiting for when God finally puts everything right, raises the dead. So the concept of being gathered to your people is, is not an ominous way to describe death. It's actually a comforting way to describe death. Like you will, you're going to go the way of your ancestors. To not be gathered to your people would carry the, con the connotation of being cut off from your people and denied your, your being with them even in death. So Aaron is told, it's your time. 
You're going to go to be with your ancestors. And literally, they would do this all the way up until the time of Jesus. Literally, uh, you would bury your family members. And it, there, were no, um, there were no, what's the word? Morticians. Uh, people that, funeral home directors, all that kind of stuff. Like when we have death, how many of you have ever washed the body of your dead relative? Probably none of you, <laughs> if you're from America. Because we have sanitized death and we've, we've separated death from our experience. But in Israel, as we saw a few weeks ago, because of the purification rites, you buried your dead relatives. Like you physically washed their body, you wrapped it, you put spices or whatever you wanted to to make it as presentable as possible, and you put it in the ground in your family plot. And then, about a year or so later, you went back and you got those bones that were left after all the flesh and the organs and the organic material had decayed off. You gathered those bones and you put them with the other bones, the rest of the people in your family that had died. That practice wasn't going on at this point yet. It would fully develop by the time of Jesus. But you, they, I mean, there's all these hundreds of these boxes where you put the bones and then you put those in a crypt. They found them all over in, in Israel. They found Jesus' brother, James's a few years ago. His actual bone box. They're called ossuaries. But the concept was, even in death, you're with your people. You're with the family of faith. Even death can't stand in the way of what God's doing for His people. And so that's what it's time for Aaron. He's the high priest. So his garments, Moses did as the Lord commanded. They went up Mount Hor in the sight of the whole community. Everybody sees this. Moses removed Aaron's garments, and this is the garments of the priesthood, and put them on his son Eliezer. And Aaron died there on top of the mountain. Then Moses and Eliezer came down from the mountain. And when the whole community learned that Aaron had died, the entire house of Israel mourned for him 30 days. So a month. He's the only high priest they'd ever known. He's the only one who could ever enter into the Holy of Holies thus far. He, I mean, this is big. He's their number two in command. There's Moses, there's Aaron. And it's been that way since the Exodus. Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh. Moses and Aaron said, let my people go. Moses and Aaron performed all the miracles of the plagues that brought Israel out. Aaron's dead. He dies on the mountain in the sight of all the people. And, and you know, we think of mountains. Don't think of like Everest. You know, mountains in this region are what we would call hills. I mean, you can... You could see what's going on. Uh, but he goes up, and then Moses and Eliezer come down. So he dies. Aaron dies in his role as the high priest. And it's passed on. Now this will happen again. Moses is going to die on a mountain. And he is going to be succeeded by Joshua. So there's a, there's a pattern going on here. The next generation is anointed and appointed before the the their person who they're succeeding dies so that everyone knows this is the next, this is your leadership. <clears throat> but this is the end of uh, this, this, again, this chapter marks that dying off of the last generation. And there's going to be this break or, or a turn in the narrative coming up where Israel is going to continue on even without Aaron. Eliezer's the high priest. And they're going to continue and they're going to journey and they are going to encounter resistance again. Not from their relatives, the Edomites, but from the Moabites and the Ammonites who are a little bit north. And they're going to have some battles. And even this 
as one generation's dying out, remember, it's not a clean break. As one generation's dying off, the other generation is rising. The generation who is going to inherit the land are, are adults now. And they're going to be taking over everything soon. So you're going to get a taste of their victories as they enter into the land and eventually make it all the way up to the plains of Moab, looking over into the promised land. And that's where they're going to stop. They're going to camp. The book of Numbers will end. And then Deuteronomy will recount it all and give that generation their, their version of the law that their parents had gotten. That's why Deuteronomy is called Deuteronomy, the second law, Deuteronomos, the second law. It's the second time that God's people will be given the law because they're the new generation. So God is, is finishing off this generation while raising up the next generation. And the events that are, are going to come in the coming weeks, they're going to encounter some, it's going to get weird, numbers is. There's going to be a, a pagan prophet who actually prophesies from God, uh, there's going to be a donkey that talks to him. Weird. There's going to be a king that's trying to pay, uh, you know, paid assassin basically, but spiritually speaking, hiring this guy. Um, and through it all, God's people are going to continue on that progression to the promised land because that's what God has promised them. They will make it, but not those who have been in disobedience. They die off in the desert. So that's where we're headed, but we're out of time this week. Again, we got plenty of food here. Come get some seconds. If you want to continue to support this ministry financially, there's uh, where you can give online on the iPad. Otherwise, come back next week. Bring a friend, bring a coworker. Tell people. I'm going to have cards next week that you can actually give to people saying, hey, here's what's going on, and that also have links to the podcast because we record each week so you can follow along all the way back to Genesis. So that's it. Have a great week, everybody.